From Brennan to the Boca Chill, from Lamy to La Push, and from the lordly Sawduck to lovely Duckabush. From Samish to Sammamish, Suquamish to Quillacine, the climate is so friendly, it's a land that's evergreen. Hello, and welcome to the History of the Evergreen State podcast. I'm your host, John C., and thank you for joining me today for Episode 70, Sweet Treats of the Evergreen State, a Thanksgiving special. Just over a century ago, Tacoma, the city of destiny, had another worthy nickname, the candy capital of the world. The Evergreen State didn't have a particularly large sweet tooth, but what Tacoma did have was the perfect climate that was ideal for chocolate, and due to the city being the terminus of a transcontinental railroad, meant that its confectionery treats could be shipped throughout the world. The bustling port along Tacoma's waterfront meant that candy treats could also be shipped across the Pacific to various ports in Asia. It's been said that the history of candy in Tacoma tells the story of the city of destiny itself. Candy making, particularly making scrumptious chocolate treats, was still very much a cottage industry at the beginning of the 19th century, mainly down to the simple truth that it just didn't travel very well, given that it melts if it gets much warmer than room temperature. The Evergreen State's mild climate allowed chocolate to stay cool enough so that it didn't melt, but also not so cold that it became brittle. These two simple factors alone meant that Tacoma was the candy center from the turn of the 19th century until around World War II and really only faded because of the rise of refrigerated train cars. There was one point in time that Tacoma boasted more than 50 different candy makers, with a lot coming and going, and a few have stuck around and remain to this day, though some of them didn't always stay in the city of destiny. Frank C. Mars began renting space in 1913 in a building that was located at 1149 Tacoma Avenue and began a candy-making enterprise that he had originally started tinkering with in his kitchen a couple of years prior. Mr. Mars was met with a moderate level of success and at the company's height, about 100 people were employed making candy, but by 1923, Mr. Mars had moved his business first to Minnesota where he introduced the famous Milky Way bar, then moved the company once again to Chicago where the Mars company introduced the Mars bar as well as the Three Musketeers and one of my all-time favorites, the Snickers bar. In 1940, Mars started producing M&Ms, which were named by Frank's son Forrest Mars and his business partner Mr. Murray. The candy was actually developed after the company moved for the fourth time to New Jersey. These new colorful candies were a smashing success with troops fighting in the Second World War because they didn't melt in their ration kits or in their pockets. The war meant that this new candy didn't actually become available to the public until 1946. These initial packages of M&M's sold for 15 cents and contained 4 ounces of pure deliciousness. But even better than anything Mars produces in my opinion is what Tacoma's icons Harry Brown and Jonathan Haley concocted, known as the Almond Roca, and even though it sort of resembles a cat turd and kitty litter, it's far from tasting like it and is pure bliss in a gold wrapper. The company of Brown and Haley remains a Tacoma institution to this very day. This delicious treat that they make is exported all around the globe, especially to markets in Asia and the Middle East, and means that the factory is humming every day and night pumping out these sweet treats to keep up with the steady demand. The company that is now known as Brown & Haley was first formed in 1912 as the Oriole Candy Company, and in 1914 they introduced their iconic Mountain Bar, but at the time it was called the Mount Tacoma Bar. 
I actually really dig that name, and I think they should bring it back. Makes it sound a little more local, and after all, that's what we should call Mount Rainier anyways. Better than it being named after some British dude that never even saw the damn thing, but I digress. By 1919, the company changed its name to what we know it as today, and just four years later in 1923, the signature Almond Roca made its debut. This little bit of heaven on earth was the first candy of its kind to be sold in bite-sized pieces. Before this, toffee was really only made in large sheets and sold by breaking it into pieces and being sold by weight, but that quickly went the way of the dodo thanks to Brown and Haley. Similar to the success Mars would later have with their M&Ms, Almond Roca was so successful because it traveled so well. Customers grew to love the butter-crunched toffee, nut-and-milk chocolate confection because it didn't go stale so fast. This was due to the perfected formula of the product and its unique packaging which utilized pressurization. This technique was developed by the company in 1927 after finding inspiration in the meatpacking industry that was prevalent in Tacoma at the time. Their slogan was evidenced by this, for it was known as the candy that travels. Their iconic pink tins and golden foil wrapping helped them become standouts in the candy game, and when tins of these delicious candies found their way overseas during the Second World War, then Korea and Vietnam, the market for this treat expanded significantly. Today, overseas sales account for over 40% of Brown and Haley's sales, which in turn makes the Tacoma-based company the highest volume confectionery exporter in the entire country all coming from its single facility in Tacoma. Now I really want an Almond Roca. Another company that still calls the City of Destiny home to this day is the Johnson Candy Company. This company started in 1949 and has been at the same location at 924 Martin Luther King Way since it opened over 70 years ago. This business actually started life back in 1925, just down the street, as an ice cream parlor. The current location started out as a restaurant, but they soon became known for their chocolate candies, with these treats taking over the space and the restaurant portion being phased out. The Russell family still continues to own and operate the business, with the third generation of the family now in charge continuing a proud family tradition. One of the Tacoma companies that didn't survive into the present is that of the Weagle Candy Company, though the building it occupied still stands today as the Cherry Parks Building on the campus of the University of Washington Tacoma at 1924 Pacific Avenue. The Weagle Candy Company was formed when five partners came together and opened up shop in 1904, making this operation one of the first chocolatiers in Tacoma. Included among the partners was three brothers, a gentleman by the name of Andrew Walter, and the final partner, Rudolph Weagle. Though the company is long gone now, its advertisement painted on the side of their former factory building remains as one of the only reminders of this once pioneering company. One more sweet treat connected to the city on Commencement Bay is that of Irv Robbins of Baskin and Robbins fame. He got his start working with the sweet treat known as ice cream at his father's shop called the Olympic Store at 954 Court C, while the young Robbins still attended Stadium High School. Eventually, Irv Robbins moved down to California and got into the ice cream business with his brother-in-law, Burt Baskin. As the company was formed, the dynamic duo had just developed the national treasure that is chocolate mint ice cream. Their groundbreaking first franchise agreements revolutionized the world of food service back in 1953. Moving on from the city of destiny, I couldn't talk sweet treats from the Evergreen State without talking about my favorite local candy, Applets and Cotlets, our own little version of Turkish Delights. The story of these little squares of pure deliciousness goes back to the beginning of the 1900s when a young man by the name of Armin Terzegian emigrated from his homeland in Armenia to the United States. He passed through Ellis Island and made his way across the vast continent until he wound up in Seattle. 
It was at a YMCA in Seattle where Armin encountered another young man from Armenia named Mark, and the two quickly became best friends. They soon decided to go into business together, but they both found business life in Seattle to be pretty difficult. The two friends were way ahead of their time for the young city of Seattle when they established a yogurt factory in an Armenian restaurant that both quickly failed. The two men, used to the balmy climate of the eastern Mediterranean, found the long and wet winters of Seattle just too damn difficult to live with. So Armin and his friend Mark headed out for sunny eastern Washington. It was on the far side of Stevens Pass that they found exactly what they were looking for. Nestled at the foot of the Cascade Mountains is the fertile Kashmir Valley, and it was here that they settled and purchased an apple orchard and farm that the two dubbed Liberty Orchards to honor the love that they had for their new country. During the First World War, times were pretty tough for the orchardists around the Evergreen State, so Mark and Armin began searching for new ways to use up their fruit surplus so that they didn't lose even more money than they already were. Dehydrating their apples seemed to make the most sense for their first move, and soon, the Northwest Evaporating Company was curated. This new business provided local farms with the assistance that they so desperately needed in addition to helping out with the war effort to provide our boys overseas with an apple a day. Another success for the partners around the same time was the tasty concoction that is known as Aplum. Aplum is produced at an area cannery named Wenatchee Valley Foods and is a jam that is made from apples and plums, and if you're looking for a great Christmas gift, this is it folks, it's freaking delicious. Wenatchee Valley Foods soon became the main business for the two friends in the 30s and 40s. It grew so rapidly that Mark brought his nephew, John Chikirian, into the business to help them out. In the early 40s, a brilliant idea occurred to Mark and Armin when they thought, why not use surplus apples to make Ramat Lakom? This candy was popular in their native Armenia and the two had loved it as children. Thus began the long process of developing a recipe crafted to perfection on a stove at one of their homes. What resulted from these efforts was a delicious apple and walnut recipe that immediately became a smash hit. Armin soon began to travel across the Pacific Northwest, selling the aptly dubbed Confection of the Fairies, otherwise known as Applets. Cotlets made their debut a few years later and are made from apricots and walnuts. It wasn't long before people all over the Evergreen State started sending out these scrumptious little treats to far-off friends and relatives. These gifts from the Pacific Northwest were not available in other outside markets at the time, so the company began a highly successful and way-ahead-of-its-time mail-order department that is still going strong to this day. The World War II years meant that sugar rationing was in effect and applets and cutlets became something that was made every now and then. Because food was still a huge part of the war effort, for an army marches on its stomach after all, Armin and Mark quickly pivoted to concentrate on their canning operation, doing whatever they could to help in the war effort. When hostilities came to a close in 1945, the cannery was sold so that they all could focus on Liberty Orchards and their growing candy business. Armin's daughter married a man by the name of Dick Odabashian, who just so happened to be an airplane pilot. He joined the company and was soon logging countless flight hours promoting applets and cutlets wherever his travels took him. Armin Tertsegian passed away in 1952 and Mark Balaban just four years later, with the business staying in the family. Liberty Orchards continued to grow and exploded in popularity in 1962 thanks to the Century 21 World's Fair in Seattle, where hundreds of thousands of fairgoers were introduced to the delicious treat. This led to a huge boost in sales and propelled the company to continue to develop new products, such as grapelets that were introduced in 1974. Liberty Orchards' growing line of confections became the official candy of Spokane's Expo 74, 
which I should do an episode on soon. I'll admit, I don't know much about this World's Fair other than the fact that it was heavily based around the environment and was the smallest city to ever host a World's Fair. When John Shakirian and Dick Odabashian crept towards retirement, they invited the grandson of Armin Tertsagian, Greg Taylor, to join the company to be the third generation of family to manage it. Liberty Orchards continued to adapt and expand their product line over the years, and in 1984, the company introduced Fruit Delights, which are pretty delicious and are described as a delightful melody of various flavor and nut combinations. Featuring such flavors as strawberry, raspberry, orange, blueberry, peach, and pineapple, Fruit Delights quickly became as popular as applets and cutlets. Chocolate Delights, Hawaiian Delights, and Cranberry Applets have all followed over the years and are all delicious in their own ways. These days, Liberty Orchards has become a downright Northwest tradition, and each year over 80,000 visitors tour their candy kitchens or check out their country store. It's always a popular stop with my wife and I whenever we travel through Kashmir. The products aren't made and packaged in some huge factory, but instead are treated much the same way that Armin and Mark did over a century ago. 2020 started out with the devastating news that Armin's grandson, Greg Taylor, who had been in charge of Liberty Orchards for more than 40 years, announcing in February that if a buyer for the company was not found, the company that is now so very iconic to the Evergreen State would be forced to close its doors. The announcement was made in March of 2022 that the company would close its doors on the 1st of June. Just in time to save it, a buyer was found and it was announced that the company would not close. This all actually proved to boost sales for the business, and let me just say, I rushed out to every place I knew that sold them to grab my favorites. Liberty Orchards is now part of KDV Group, which is described by the Seattle Times as an international confectioner and snack maker. The next sweet treat of the Evergreen State is one I have a unique relationship with. I've worked in Fremont as a contractor at a large company for the last nine years, and I've been at the job since I was 19. Just down the street from the office is Theo Chocolate, which everybody just calls Theo's. Every morning on my way into work, I smell their chocolate being made, and I actually park by the building, so the old trolley barn building has begun to grow on me. I didn't quite enjoy the smell at first, but that too has grown on me, and it's something I look forward to smelling every morning. Theo's, which produced its first batch of chocolate bars on the 14th of February 2006, became the first organic and fair trade chocolates produced in the United States. The company was founded by Joe Winnie and Deborah Music and prides itself on controlling the entire bean-to-bar process and distinguishes itself from other chocolate producers, I'm not naming names, by buying directly from cocoa farmers in third world countries at fair prices. When Joe Winnie was a young man, he volunteered with a conservation group in Belize where he worked in Mayan communities. Later, in the 1990s, he met impoverished and malnourished cocoa farmers in Ghana. He wrote that, ultimately, I saw firsthand the horrible impact that the chocolate industry has had on the cacao growers and the landscape that they steward. Joe helped to establish a U.S. market for organic cacao beans, but soon became frustrated with all of the middlemen involved in getting the product from farm to factory to shelves. There were so many margin slices taken out in the supply chain that I was losing money paying farmers what I thought was a decent price. Joe soon realized that if he was going to do this right and continue to do right by the farmers, he was going to need a chocolate factory of his own. His own world of pure imagination, if you will. Wasn't the Gene Wilder version of Willy Wonka so much better than Johnny Depp's version? Anyways, he saw an opportunity in 2004 when the 26,000 square foot Fremont trolley barn became available when Red Hook Brewery left for Woodenville. 
This beautiful red brick building was constructed in 1905 at 3400 Finney Avenue North between Ewing and Blewett Streets, which are now North 34th and North 35th Streets. 1905 was a time when trolleys were big business for Fremont, and the area was the hub for travel between Seattle and Everett. The total cost to erect the building was a little under $32,000. By the time the trolley tracks across the region were pulled up in 1942, the building saw use by the United States Army, which used the building to store vehicles and reportedly a couple of tanks. This was right at the height of World War II after all. It then served as a garage for garbage trucks following the war until the 1980s and was then used by various businesses until 1988 when it was then leased by Red Hook Brewery. Joe Winnie convinced his ex-wife Deborah Music to move with him from Boston to Seattle to raise their son together and help curate the ethically sourced chocolate company that he had imagined. Music knew this was a massive leap of faith. She believed in Joe's cause and wrote, There's a profound irony in the fact that, while chocolate is one of our most beloved indulgences, an expression of love in our culture, and a food that we use to comfort and celebrate ourselves, the conventional cacao industry has been responsible for devastating environmental degradation and human exploitation for many decades. Joe Winnie and Deborah Music founded Theo Chocolate in 2005. The interesting name comes from Theobrahma cacao, the Latin genus and species of the cacao tree, with the O in the logo on the packaging drawn to resemble cacao. The former Red Hook Brewery and Trolley Barn needed a lot of work to be turned into Joe's planned chocolate factory, which really started from the bottom and went all the way up to the roof of the building. The flooring of the building had to be reinforced to support the very heavy equipment for making chocolate and for storing the many bags of organic beans. Winnie and Music made their first delivery after producing their first bars on the 14th of February, which they did themselves on foot. They carried boxes of vanilla milk chocolate up 34th Street a couple of blocks to the Fremont PCC Natural Market. Music wrote, I'll never forget walking our very first batch of chocolate up to the PCC Market in Fremont. That was an amazing day. By 2018, Theos had grown to 97 full-time employees and boasted a revenue of more than $25 million, all while educating their consumers, continuing to buy their beans from farmers in Central and South America and the Democratic Republic of Congo, and continuing to develop unique products. These range from a coconut curry flavor chocolate bar to Congo coffee and cream, fig, fennel, and almond bars, as well as the interesting-sounding ghost chili caramels. After what has been described by Joe Winnie as a disagreement with the board of directors over Theo's mission, the two founders of the company left in late 2017. Joe Winnie would be replaced as CEO by Etienne Patau in April of 2018, who was formerly the chief marketing officer of a major vitamin and supplement producer, though Joe Winnie did end up retaining his minority share in the company. As part of Theo's mission from its earliest days, the company has offered tours of its factory which offers the chance for potential customers to learn about where the cacao beans are grown and how, as well as how the farmers and land are affected, in addition to showing everyone the process of producing chocolate. To sweeten the deal, free samples of their product are offered throughout the tour. I couldn't talk about sweet treats of the Evergreen State without talking about a uniquely sweet Washington vegetable. Walla Walla sweet onions have actually been designated the official vegetable of the Evergreen State and was done so on the 20th of April 2007, when then-Governor Christine Gregwire signed House Bill No. 1556. The bill was passed unanimously by the State House of Representatives and by a 42-3 margin in the State Senate. All of this was done after a sort of food fight that had gone on for the previous three years. The designation was the result of lobbying from students with the help of teachers from both Kirkland Junior High and Eatonville Middle School. 
They began lobbying for the bill and were soon joined by farmers who grew Walla Walla sweet onions. Kirkland Junior High teacher Tony Miller and her students proposed the legislation involving Walla Walla onions late in the 2004 session, but it ran out before the bill could be passed by both houses. They tried again the following year, but it failed to pass both houses again. The next year saw these students emailing and writing their legislators, and they also began to testify during legislative hearings, but quickly met a nemesis of sorts, that of the Washington State Potato Commission. This actually makes some sense since potatoes are the top-grossing vegetable of the Evergreen State. The Potato Commission works to educate the public on all of the great uses for potatoes, as well as lobbies on behalf of potato growers across the state of Washington. Randy Mullen, the chairman of the Washington State Potato Commission, was quoted in the 15th of February 2006 edition of the Seattle Times where he stated, I don't have anything against the Walla Walla sweet onion, but if you ask me, it's a county onion, definitely not a state onion. Hilariously named, a bulb and tuber amendment was passed by a state senate committee which was intended to honor both the Walla Walla onion and potatoes, but the bill would later die for a lack of vote. Soon, the puns were overflowing from the literary gardens that are Seattle newspapers, with one story from the Seattle Times on the 4th of February 2007, hilariously stating, A year ago, the Washington Potato Commission tried to make a hash of an endearing legislative proposal by Kirkland Junior High students. They continued by stating about the bulb and tuber bill, It never gained traction, but all that disappointment has been plowed under. In a rare form of cross-party cooperation, state representatives Maureen Walsh, a Republican, and Bill Grant, a Democrat, both representing Walla Walla, reintroduced the Walla Walla Onion Bill. Surprisingly, the Washington State Potato Commission agreed not to get in the way of the bill this time around. Senator Walsh told a House committee, Frankly, onions and potatoes are a lovely combination. Since Tony Miller, the Kirkland Junior High teacher who had started all of this back in 2004, retired after the 2006 school year, Eatonville Middle School teacher Alex Hansen and his students stepped up to lobby on behalf of the bill. In the late 1880s, Peter Pieri brought onion seeds from the island of Corsica, which is off the coast of Italy, to Walla Walla, and from these original seeds, Pieri and other farmers across the valley began to develop something totally unique to the Evergreen State. By using selective cultivation over a period of time, the larger, sweeter, and almost perfectly round onion that is the Walla Walla sweet was cultivated. The initial Walla Walla onion crop was harvested in 1900. Since these onions are 95% water, they must be delicately harvested by hand. Distinguishing these onions from their tear-inducing relatives is the fact that Walla Wallas have a low percentage of pyruvic acid, which is the chemical that makes these bulbs so darn pungent. These onions can only be harvested and sold as Walla Walla onions if they are grown in the Walla Walla Valley in southeast Washington and northeast Oregon. This was made law when the United States Department of Agriculture issued Marketing Order 956 on the 24th of May 1994, which designated the Walla Walla Sweet as a unique variety and established the unique growing region. These delicious onions that I've been known from time to time to eat like an apple because they are so damn good are harvested beginning in early June and running through August, and command a significantly higher price than most other onion varieties. They continue to be shipped throughout North America and are a treasured yearly treat for me. Interestingly, Georgia, Texas, and Utah have also designated sweet onions as their state vegetables, but among them all, Walla Wallas will always reign supreme. Marilyn Rasmussen, a state senator and representative from Eatonville, told the Seattle Post-Intelligencer, Our onions may not be as prolific as our potatoes, but they sure are unique.
I know this episode is coming out around Thanksgiving, but think back to a summer you've spent here in the beautiful Evergreen State and chances are a delicious fruit will come to mind. Blackberries, though, are technically classified as a Class C noxious weed. The Pacific Northwest is actually home to three types of blackberry, but the most common is the Himalayan, which originally hails from Armenia. Control of this weed is recommended but not enforced. The evergreen blackberry also shows up on the same naughty list, and the differentiators between the two are that the evergreen has five leaflets, which are dark green and appear very jagged looking. The blackberry that is native to the evergreen state goes by a variety of names, which include the Pacific blackberry, the Douglas berry, and the California blackberry. The stem of this plant is more delicate, creeping down the ground and into small trees and shrubs. It has smaller leaves and thorns than the Himalayan blackberry, and each leaf consists of three smaller leaflets with jagged sawtooth edges. The introduced kinds generally overrun the native blackberry, and while the fruit of the Himalayan blackberry is so very tasty, its impact on the environment is less spectacular. Its dense thickets can smother natural flora and tree seedlings, as well as wildlife habitat. The stems of the Himalayan, also known as canes, are massive and quickly take over wherever they grow, reaching heights of up to 13 feet. Canes spread forth for 20 to 40 feet, taking root as soon as the tips touch the ground. Let me just tell you, they're virtually impossible to get rid of, and I've been fighting them in my backyard for years. You may be wondering, how did this plump and delicious fruit make its way to the Pacific Northwest? Well, it's a very interesting story and involves a gentleman by the name of Luther Burbank. It all started in the late 1800s when Luther, a plant breeder in Santa Rosa, California, was hard at work developing new fruit and vegetable types. He was born in Massachusetts and had little formal education, but he had a very strong interest in horticulture, which led to the purchase of a farm at the young age of 21. Very soon, he began to experiment with plant breeding at this location. He ended up creating over 800 new plant types and cultivars during his tenure. He set out to accomplish the same thing with blackberries, hoping to curate a delectable berry free of thorns. He bought a package of blackberry seeds in the course of his work that he assumed were collected somewhere in India, but he wasn't quite sure. The fruit that grew from this experiment was quite plump and juicy, and Burbank dubbed it the Himalaya Giant. He anticipated that this new blackberry would allow people to cultivate luscious fruit in their own backyards. Oh, the irony. He began distributing his new seeds in the Pacific Northwest's mild environment where the plant thrived. As they say, the rest is history. The farmed blackberry crop eventually took over the region and became a nasty and very annoying weed. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a 5-star review and don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss a new episode. Doing so really helps the show to grow and to expand to a new audience, so any help that you can give in that regard will be greatly appreciated. Sources for this episode include Curbed Seattle, The Seattle Times, The Seattle PI, The Key Peninsula News, KUOW.com, South Sound Magazine, History Link, The Seattle Business Journal, The Brown and Haley Website, The Spokesman Review, The Tri-Cities Herald, the Washington State Potato Commission, the Washington State Legislature's website, Liberty Orchards, Theo Chocolate, Recipes and Sweet Treats by Deborah Music and Joe Winnie, Theo Chocolate's website, and information I received while taking their awesome tour of the factory. Thank you for listening to Episode 70, Sweet Treats of the Evergreen State, a Thanksgiving special. Episode 71 will be released next week. In case you're wondering why some of your other favorite treats haven't showed up on this episode, well that's because I'm doing a part 2 coming out next Thanksgiving, so you're just going to have to be a little patient and wait for it. A special thanks goes out to Al Hirsch for providing the music for the podcast. 
If you have any questions about the show, please contact History of the Evergreen State Pod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to another episode of the History of the Evergreen State Podcast. And until next time, I'm your host, John C. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. There's peace on the Skokomish, on the Queets and on the Hull. There's calm on the Nisqually, born of ageless ice and snow. A land that nature loves so much, she stays the whole year round. I trade a royal palace for a shack on Puget Sound. There's Chimicum and Stillicum, where spouts the gooey duck. The singing Stillaguamish and the swirling Skookum Chuck. And Moclips and Copalis, where the razor clams abound. A little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound. A little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound.